the JTAP podcast, episode 45. Send it. I can do that. JTAX. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. Welcome, everybody, to episode 45 of the JTAP podcast. Um, today, we've got uh, an interesting perspective on our community. Um, Amy, I appreciate you uh, taking the time and sitting down and to talk to me. Absolutely. Um, like I always say on these things, uh, everyone's opinion on here is their own and not that of any organization. Um, Amy, let's uh, touch on the subject you should know the most about yourself. Maybe there is somebody else in your life that has a deeper understanding, but for right now, you, you can tell me about it. So sort of take us back to the beginning, where you grew up, where you come from, sort of what the family structure looks like, um, and sort of, you know, you're up until sort of high school level, you know, your education. Okay. Sure. So I was born in Houston, Texas, moved to Mississippi, um, not probably not too much longer after that and grew up in Mississippi, grew up and ra was raised here, went to a fairly small school and I think we had 50 something in our graduating class, wow. very small, yeah, uh, which is the same school my kids go to now. So it's, it's, uh, it's a nice little um, private school feel. It's a good little place to be out in the country. We have, um, well, I was the oldest of three sisters and uh, got married when I was 20. We've got um, three children. And um, kind of going back to, to my early years, after I graduated from high school, I think it was my senior year, I knew that I wanted to fly. I kind of decided I wanted to be a pilot back in the early days. That was something that always intrigued me. So Air Force was obviously the, the way to go. I joined when I was 17 in my senior year of high school with that career path in mind. Started going to college. Um, I think I went to basic training two weeks after I graduated from high school and then was taking summer classes uh, for college during my senior year as well. And initially I enlisted as a crew chief. So I was aircraft maintenance on KC 135s, which is the base was about 15 minutes from my house. So it just made sense. And I figured if I was going to go the pilot route, learning the aircraft from a mechanical standpoint would just be a no brainer. And that would give me hands-on experience and really give me a good understanding of how aircraft works if I'm going to fly it one day. But I, I did that for a few years, um, ended up meeting my husband and we, he was also a crew chief who later became a boom, a boom operator. And career plan kind of shifted at that point. The college that I was going to had a nursing school and I decided to go into nursing just out of um, convenience, I guess. So I was a crew chief. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, is there, is there anyone in your family that served, you know, when, you know, the sort of family structure at home and obviously three sisters, uh, you know, all running around sort of battling with each other for attention. I, I've got three daughters, so <laughs> yeah. I can, I can see that from the other perspective looking down at it. Um, but is there anyone in your family that served? What was it that was, that created the passion for you to serve? Yeah, well, my grandfathers, both my grandfathers served um, in the Navy and, and that was about it. My 
I didn't have any immediate family members that also served or anybody that I really drew our inspiration from when I joined. I don't. That spark then, would you and actually, remember a moment where you were like, because you're saying that you want to fly in something like that. Was there a particular time when you go, yeah, like, I, you know, of course I wanted to because this happened. I remember if I could pinpoint it, I guess. I just remember the recruiters coming to the school and talking to people and I just thought, oh, this is pretty cool. Like this is something I would definitely be interested in doing one day. I would love to say my grandfather who was Navy during World War II, I, I mean, I would love to say I drew, you know, inspiration from that, but I can't, I mean, at the time, I don't even know that he, that I knew that he served, you know, in that capacity. Yeah, which is interesting because I love World War II history is one of my favorite things now. But and I talk to him all the time about his his service. But at the yeah. time when I was seventeen, no, I think we're, who knows I what was going through my power. head at that point? <laughs> so many people that say that it's so interesting that like we all get later on into our careers and we all start like finding out. Like I, I, I only know my fa my family history in that sense, military history now. Mm. Like when I joined up, mm. I, as far as I was concerned, I was a little boy from Ireland and no one had ever served. And, and, and it's so many people say that they were, you know, they saw fast airplanes and they thought that was cool. Someone showed them a video. They thought that was cool. Exactly. And it was yeah. like, that was the spark that got them there. So yeah. you decide to serve and you, and, and you think that, you know, you're being smart about like looking at aircraft and, you know, turning wrenches, understanding the things. What was it? Like you said convenience, but really, obviously, you're there, you've met your husband, and you are doing a degree already. How was it that nursing even came up? I know you say it's convenience, but something that doesn't, like, that's not, like, it doesn't say that on the box. And my, I have a grandmother and a mother that were nurses and midwives, and I know it's not convenient. So, uh, to be so, a nurse. I think for me, I was, it was a small community college. Yeah. 15, 20 minutes away from the house. And I knew at that point, um, after he and I started dating and got married, if I was going to pursue engineering, which was my original uh, career path, maintenance, going to mechanical or aeronautical engineering, and then have my degree, become a pilot, that was the path that I kind of set out for myself. And then being from a whole a small town, you know, a small hometown in Mississippi, um, I hate to say there's certain family roles and stigmas and, you know, you're just, you know, you're, you're young, you get married, you're supposed to be the, the wife that stays at home and takes care of the kids and the house and everything. And I knew that was kind of never going to be my path, but at the same time, you have these you know, conflicting emotions and thoughts about it because you have an idea of what family and people expect of you. But then me being a 17 year old girl joining the military and going off to see the world was never really my, my path. I don't know. I, I knew if I wanted to pursue engineering, I was going to have to go off to another college and it was going to, I think at that point I was young and in love and wanted to stay close to home and, and kind of go the family route. So there was a nursing school um, within the community college that I was going to, and I could do everything there, either online or at night while I was on orders, because that was right around the time that September 11th kicked off as well. And so we were on orders constantly and being sent off to, you know, these little deployments and things. So 
there was a lot going on. And I think at the time, that just kind of felt like it was the easier thing to do. Yeah, I so, think it's interesting though, because like, I don't ever want anyone to sort of think that, you know, those roles aren't important. It's like family's massive. You, mm-hmm. you Nothing you do, like, you know, I, I'm in my late 30s and I still like lean on my family for things. And uh, I think, you know, that those roles are important. And I don't think you feel those things for the wrong reasons. Like, it's great that you yeah. want to continue to pursue a career it's great that you wanted to continue your education but why shouldn't you get married why shouldn't you be a wife and why mm-hmm. shouldn't you raise a family at the same time as doing all those things so yeah I, it's definitely for me i think that's a huge positive that you could find a way in your way of doing both so mm-hmm. what does that look like then how do you so you've you, you've decided to pick that you, you go to, into nursing what does sort of the end of that look like? Because obviously you are serving in the military and you're saying you're doing night classes, mm-hmm. but at some point you've got to switch over to clinicals, right? Yes. And I was able to do that pretty easily because I am Air Force, but it's Air National Guard for us. So I was on orders and able to pretty much do it full time in the beginning. Once things started settling down, I kind of put that on the back burner and just went traditional route and guard drills, um, summer camp during the summer. So I was able to juggle that with full-time nursing school pretty easily in clinicals. I graduated in 2006, and which was also the year I had my first child, so my daughter. Um, just kind of did the traditional thing for a while with the guard, and with my husband also being in, we would kind of switch up um, who would watch kids if I had a trip or if he had a trip and that's pretty much been our entire our entire marriage we I think I've got I would have 19 years in this year if I'd not gotten I got out for about a year and a half I had my daughter and then a year and a half later had our son so took a little year and a half break and at that point our base went through a BRAC, which is a base realignment and configuration. So they actually took away our tankers okay. for about a two year time frame. And at that point, having the kids so close in age, and I was just trying to figure out like, do I want to stay? I knew I wanted to stay in, but I didn't really know what that was looking like for me at that point. Um, I had my degree, I was a nurse, but I was still enlisted on the guard side as a maintenance um, crew chief, but they were taking our aircraft away. And I didn't know what they were going to send us. Um, they sent two different airframes in for training just to see if it would work. And I decided kind of in that time frame, to transfer to another base and become a flight nurse, got my commission. So I knew kind of going back to the airplane thing, I knew I never wanted to be a nurse in a clinic because I could have done that years prior and, you know, gotten my commission, but I love the hands-on, you know, going and turning wrenches and being on the aircraft and being able to fly. That was always like a huge passion of mine. So the other base was about an hour and a half away and I knew as a flight nurse, I'd still be able to have the opportunity to fly and go out on missions and see a little more action. So that's what I did at that point. That was 2010. And I've been doing that ever since. Yeah. Uh, on the so side. The platforms that I, obviously you're working on, when you, 
over, when you move over to flight nurse, because obviously there's multiple platforms for that role, it, because you're guard, are you driven into one direction or do you go away to a school and they're like, if you do an aeromed on this aircraft, it's like this. If you do an aeromed on this aircraft, like what is the sort of spectrum that you're expected to be able to operate on? So our three main airframes are KC-135s, which was what I was a crew chief on. So I, I knew that one um, like the back of my hand, which was fun. Kind of being able to shift gears and operate on an aeromedical side. We don't fly on those very often, but that's one of our three primary airframes. The other two are C-17s and C-130s. Okay. The base that I'm at, we have C-17s, and they are like the Cadillac of the AE system. You know, you have good lighting, you've got plenty of room. Yeah. They're incredible. And then for, and those are usually for our longer hauls, um, Germany, back to the States, or across countries. The C-130s are kind of my favorite, I guess. You know, you're a little more cramped and crowded, but I don't know. You can get down and dirty in some of these little locations and some of these fobs and land on these dirt strips, which you can on the, one, on the C-17s as well. But I just, I love the 130s for some reason. But yeah, we had to learn, um, going back to the air medical part of it, you have to know the electrical systems and your oxygen systems and what your capabilities are on all three airframes and they're also different you have to know um, how your emergency equipment will will work within those electrical systems and um, within your parameters and it's it's interesting it's a lot of background knowledge on the aircraft which i love and i feel like i'm really good at that part of it and then you get to take care of patients so it's yeah. Best of both worlds for me. <laughs> you know, obviously you've done multiple trips as a, as a, you know, on the aircraft anyway, but when you switched over, obviously that's pretty a high tempo time, like especially for guys like coming out of theater. We, is there like, mm. are there different air bridges? What sort, when you get orders, how does it look like you're talking about the different airframes being able to get down and dirty? I mean, I know that we would like rotor guys into certain locations, bring the C-130 in, and we know that that would be a stepped process. That C-130 would go exactly. to another location from Germany back to another location, even back to the UK. That was a mm -hmm. staged process. Do you like mix up where exactly. you are? Do your orders change where you are, or are you just on one location at each time? So the way our deployments go, and when, when AeroVac deploys, we, we deploy kind of in meshed groups. We'll have guard, reserves, and active duty and they're all four month deployments. And when our unit deploys as a whole, we send a crew to Germany or a crew to Al-Udeed in Qatar or Afghanistan. So we're kind of spread out all over the place and we have some people stationed in the States at Andrews and then at Kelly in Texas. And that kind of correlates with the, if you're saying the bridge of, um, point A to B to C. To, so the way it works typically is if we were stationed in Qatar, which was my last deployment, we kind of had set days that we would, that we knew we were going to have missions, but then something might pop up also just out of the blue that we had to respond to. But our typical missions, we would fly from LUD with no patients. We would just dry aircraft with our equipment and we'd fly either into Iraq or Afghanistan figure out which stops we had to make and we would pick up our patients there 
usually bring them back into Al Udeed and they would stay there for a night and then a Germany crew would fly in, pick them up, take them back to Germany. And then from that point, you'd either have another Germany crew take them back to the States or a crew from the States flying to Germany to pick them up. So it's, you never knew where the crew was originating out of, but that was kind of the, the process. Yeah. And so, so you like, like you said, hard. yes. Yeah, we were based out of there, but we would fly um, either the Iraq or Afghanistan route. We would fly into Bahrain, Kuwait. We had some flights going into Jordan, just all over, depending on where they needed us. But, and we, it was not uncommon to get stuck in a place for a couple of days due to aircraft issues or crew duty day um, exceeding, you know, the amount of hours that you were supposed to fly within a, a certain time frame. But then we would always end up back in LUD and then we'd wait for our next mission. Yeah. How much sort of notice do you guys get on those kind of things? Like how much information do you have about like what, what's being received onto the aircraft? Like what state people are in or how many you're getting before you like launch? So depends on where you're at. With LUD, we had a little, we never quite knew what we were going to be getting. We would go in that morning, usually super early to brief. We would, we'd be alerted. We would have to respond within an hour at the briefing room to start our brief and get our weapons and get our intel, the whole process, load our equipment. We had a little bit more time to get the aircraft configured because we knew we weren't going to have patience at that point. And then we could have, if we were flying into Iraq or Afghanistan, we usually had three or four hours to get the aircraft configured and ready. We had a vague idea of what our patient load was going to be, but then you get there and it can always change. You might have patients drop off. You might have patients added. We might have had an extra leg somewhere else that we had to go pick patients up at. So we would have um, within the system, there's, it's called traces and traces is what keeps up with your patients. And it's this big computer system that they'll input patient information in. So we kind of had an idea of what to expect, but you know, conditions change and people get added. So we, it's not uncommon to get to the location and say, oh, well, here's three more patients that we didn't know we were getting. So it's a lot of, you know, trying to make on, you know, on-site decisions as far as do we have enough room for this patient, their equipment and their, their luggage? Do we have, um, do we have enough hours within our duty day to make that extra stop or whatever the case was? We also had to make decisions on cargo. Can we take this extra cargo? Will it interfere with our, with our patient load and what we're able to do um, within our AE? Because the, the mission was always primarily AE. Everything else was secondary. So we got to make calls on the cargo or the extra passengers that they were trying to stick on the plane. So it's, it's a lot of logistics involved yeah. with, within if, that. When you're sort of arriving and, and I'm, I'm going to sort of take it to the most dirty situation as opposed mm -hmm. to like the nice clean going landing, you know, on a nice strip and the, the guys at, at the roll three of package, everything coming out yeah. nice. You know, what sort of interaction do you guys sort of have with like the PJs and the CCT guys when you're going into somewhere more austere, like how much are you having a conversation with those guys or, and then once you get physically into the location, what's the sort of like 
that handover, what does that look like once you're on the ground and the aircraft in those situations? So for, so within a regular AE crew, we have typically five members. We have two nurses and three med techs. So your head nurse um, is your medical crew director. And if I was flying medical crew director, which I was on my last deployment, once you were about an hour out of landing into any location, you would go up to the flight deck um, with the pilots and you would get on the radio and you would make a call into that location. You would let them know, okay, this is what we need. This, these are the patients that we have that we're either offloading or that we know we're getting. So we are going to need an ambus. We're going to need, um, if we had a critical patient or somebody with um, a little bit more, if they're conditioned, say it was a cardiac patient, you know, you'd want to let them know we need something. They need to come out with a monitor or we need to have an ambulance that's equipped for ACLS, you know, protocol. If something were to happen on the ramp as we're offloading a patient. Um, so little things like that. The pilots were normally the ones in charge of radioing um, a lot of those details. I very rarely got to actually talk to somebody because the radio systems and being able to get those messages to somebody, you, it was hit or miss. You never knew what you were gonna be able to um, talk to. And so I would get up there, try to radio out, and then get back down to the patients as quick as I could. But um, so not a whole lot of interaction for us until we got on the ground. And then at that point, you don't know if you're getting a handoff from another nurse, from a medic, if it's going to be, uh, you have a lot of joint forces there. So um, the Aussies, the you know UK, we just never knew who you were going to get a handoff from. And kind of going along with that you have to go with the flow because the paperwork's different the the process is a little bit different so it's interesting yeah <laughs> I think we could probably uh we could all learn a lesson from that in uh, in as much as more cross training required and uh, maybe exactly. some, uh, some standardization on some uh, some paperwork exactly I, I uh and I speaking to that go ahead I'm sorry. Yeah, speaking to that a little bit, we have done some very fun exercises over the last few years with with um, uh, Royal Air Force. I can't. I guess it was a couple of years ago. We did an exercise up in it was at Volk Field, and we had a Royal Air Force guys there. I'm telling you, that was one of the most fun exercises we've ever done. Just being able to interact with those guys and see how they do it on their air meds and how we do our stuff. Uh, just little things as far as basic litter carries and their their protocols and how they're different from ours. It's a lot of fun, but in our downtown, gosh, we had the best time. And I made some of the best friends from that yeah. experience. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the Brits know how to do the downtime. I, I can definitely compare <laughs> to that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the um the it, it it became a bit of a standing joke at the beginning when we started doing this and, and and a lot of people have started to debunk the rumor but there's like a rumor that jtac's bodies only run on like caffeine and whiskey and and as <laughs> after we've done about 40 something episodes of this there's a few guys out there drinking herbal tea but they're the outliers you know what i mean <laughs> um yeah or they've given up whiskey because they're a little bit angry and a bit scottish so they probably shouldn't be drinking too much of it but obviously, as a nurse, you would recommend that we all like, you know, everything in moderation. But are you, what kind of, uh, 
when you step into the aircraft and you know you need to have that hit are you a coffee snob in any way shape or form oh man um not really just strong black coffee is usually i it has to be black coffee and i'm super plain when it comes to that so we when we would land into baghdad on our last deployment we had this guy from our unit who was on the ground there kind of doing he was one of the liaisons and it was kind of a standing joke i would text him prior to us taking off i was like all right we're going to be there in about four hours and he would be there like clockwork on the ramp as soon as we landed with all of our coffee orders <laughs> so yeah that was everybody had their their frou-frou-y coffee um their white chocolate mochas and their <laughs> Irish truffle and it for uh, me it was just plain black coffee every single time and the old mocha chook of crap of bullshit <laughs> yeah I exactly if it takes more than three words to offer you order your coffee it's not coffee anymore I know I know yeah. so, other than that um I kind of like the bang energy drinks I've kind of gotten oh, hooked oh, on those a little bit it. yeah just from the whole CrossFit standpoint and competitions here and there I, I do like those so what's, but, yeah. uh, where do you, obviously being in that fitness community and you're, you've just said energy drinks, but they're going to be slightly more specific. I don't think that's just going to be some like dirty monster. What, what brand are you on? Are you on Killcliffe or someone like that? Uh, I do like Killcliffe. I love Killcliffe. Um, Bang energy drinks are really good. Do y'all have those over there? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, obviously it's bled. It, these, it's interesting because those sort of things have, bled in with like the functional fitness world and, and, and come mm -hmm. in that way. Um, and that's what's kind of the way they've come across, but they're not as prevalent, you know, here, mm -hmm. all those brands, there's Noco yeah. that's over here. That's massive. Um, okay. but when it comes to the other end of the day, obviously down in uh, Mississippi, what, what are you drinking of an evening? <sighs> I love a good red wine. I don't know. It depends on the environment. It, yes, exactly. It depends on what's going on. If I'm just kind of chilling by myself, reading a book, I'll have a glass of wine. Um, Irish coffee. I thoroughly enjoy just black coffee with a little bit of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my newest that I've kind of, I don't know, the, the black Trulies, the black can Trulies with the, it's like lemonade and I don't know. It's kind of a girly drink, but I'll, if I'm with some girlfriends hanging out, I'll drink those. <laughs> so, so yeah, red, red wine's my go-to. Yeah, I hear that. Um, if, uh, if you would like to thought, think about your community and the way the sort of people on an outside would be looking at it, what's the kind of biggest myth that you think an outsider looking in has about you guys? From the military standpoint no from specifically or, in your sort of world like aeromed oh. and, and that kind of stuff i don't know i think a lot of people that hear that i that i'm a flight nurse and that i do i think the misconception is that we're all flying around on helicopters you know responding to these big traumatic wrecks and accidents Whereas for us, it's very different. We, you know, we're getting everybody on the back end of that. So your medevac responds first, your rotary wing picks them up, takes them to, you know, these hospitals where they get them stabilized. And that's kind of the point where we pick up and, and, and step in. 
So by the time we get patients, they're already decently stable, I guess, or, you know, a day or two out from whatever accident they had. Yeah. But I think it's, it's less of the trauma, uh, you know, point of injury, trauma, stabilization. It's less of that and more up. You never know what you're going to get. It may be pediatric patients. It may be cancer patients. It could be gunshot wounds. It could be psychiatric, so much psychiatric right now. Um, I would say that is the vast majority of what we take care of recently. And then your sports injury, your orthopedic stuff. Um, can I tell you how many injuries we had where somebody stepped into a pothole and twisted their ankle or blew out their shoulder doing push-ups or bench press? Um, somebody got tackled wrong playing football, you know, because they had so much downtime. So it's a lot of that kind of stuff too. I see. Bad, so, it's bad for you. It's bad for your health. Work more. <laughs> Get out and work we had, we had one guy that we picked up. He had been in, oh, where I don't remember exactly where. But they were finally finding out that they were getting to leave and go home within two weeks. And he was so excited that he attempted a backflip, landed wrong, broke his ankle, and got to get out of there two weeks earlier because we got to... <laughs> <laughs> so weak. <laughs> you never know. The thing is, like, you just never think about that sort of stuff. You never think about a guy. I guess it happens, you know, someone does something dumb and like breaks their ankle. They can't, you know, they can't be there anymore. But like, you always think about it being the, that worst case scenario. You know, someone's been shot, someone's been blown up, blah, blah, blah. But you don't exactly. think about all, all the other things. Also, it's like, there's this sort of like idea, you know, when people see those photos of you guys in the back of the aircraft with like the pods up and all this, that, and it's like, oh my goodness, mm -hmm. they're like, they're conducting open heart surgery in the back of the aircraft <laughs> while it's flying or, or something. Um, yeah. And that kind of stuff. And I guess. And they, they're actually gearing towards that. And I think um, they've had it in the works for a while to be able to be able to be able to do that and conduct certain operations in flight which That's is crazy. phenomenal when you think about how far they've come. Yeah. But yeah, we've, you see some crazy stuff. I mean, it's from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah. We also uh, take care of retirees or contractors that have come over, like you know, these older guys who may have been retired air force and now they're over there contracting. So you just, it's. Yeah. I mean, I guess full it, spectrum. it doesn't cross your mind. I, I think it's terrible that obviously you go for the worst case scenario, but it, it, you know, it's constant. And that's another thing you hear all these stories about guys and that pathway that they go through, you know, you know, they get hit, their combat medics take care of them. They put them on the, on the Blackhawks and the PJs take care of them. And they get put into a role, you know, role three or whatever. And then you guys come along and you take them back to Germany and they're there, you know, they could be there for months or whatever. And then they come and then they come yeah. home. There's so many people, so many touch points. And uh, exactly. it's interesting. A lot of my friends, if you listen to, um, there's a guy called Dunk, the uh, British guy. He went back, he's gone back and he's traced everybody that touched him from the moment he like had his legs blown off. And like, he's got them all to like together and he's like spoke to every single one of them because he was like, well, so many people put their hands on me, you know, just to get me yeah. home. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and he was pretty much, you know, he's unconscious for most of it um, or he doesn't. Yeah. And he's like, he's got the names of the crew who pulled him out and everything. And I just think no one from an outsider's point of view, no one realizes how many people put their hands on you to get you home. Exactly. 
yeah. it's incredible. The whole process is incredible. And it's, it just goes so seamlessly, typically. I mean, you're always going to run into little, little hiccups here and there. But overall, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing system. Yeah, so it's very well designed. Um, so when you're like, obviously, you, you know, you're running a whole team and you've got the whole set up and, and it's busy in the back there and stuff. How do you like, you said that obviously there's a lot of logistics going on. How do you set that up? How do you manage that? Are you like, you got it all on a notebook? Is there like a, you know, a set of guidelines that you guys follow? How do you run your business in the back of the aircraft? So before every mission, we have a brief. And in that briefing, each person has a role. So your MCD, your, your first flight nurse, is the one that's kind of the director of that crew and handles most of the paperwork handles most of the decision making um you handle the onload and offload you direct the onload and offload of patients your second flight nurse is the one that's kind of in charge of patient care so if something were to happen they would be the one running the emergency uh, scenario like the code or whatever whatever that would entail and then on your med tech side, you've got your charge med tech and they are the one that's kind of in charge of aircraft configuration. So based on what patients you have, and what your patient load is, um, what their needs are, either equipment needs or oxygen needs, they, with the flight nurses, kind of figure out where the patients need to be structured within the aircraft or positioned within the aircraft. And kind of just goes from there. You based on what you know your patients are going to have and what they're going to need, you kind of make your, um, your load plan during your brief and you know where your patients are going to be sitting or laying, um, you know, based on where your oxygen ports are or where your, you know, your, your oxygen sources are. On C-17s, we have um, oxygen that comes from the aircraft. If you're flying in a C-130, you have to bring your oxygen with you. So there's a lot of little details like that that play into it but before you ever get your patients you kind of have this rough plan of where everybody's going to be sitting where everybody's going to be laying you get out to the aircraft you configure it based off that plan and you set up your state your litter stanchions you set up your oxygen lines to the patients that are going to need oxygen and inevitably something always changes at some point but that's your rough you know, your rough draft for the mission. And then if something changes, you just reevaluate it, come up with a secondary plan. And the type of person that I am, I, I never get too, <laughs> I don't know. I never get too caught up in the whole process. I'm like, well, if something changes, you know, we just tackle it then, you know, come up with an alternate plan and push forward with it. You know, our primary mission is to deliver patients safely from point A to point B. And if that means ultimately taking a late takeoff somewhere, well, you know what, that they're there to transport us. So I don't, I don't get too caught up in that. And, um, no, I think that's, I think that's great. I think, you know, I think it's interesting yeah. that, you know, you can apply that across, like, across our entire community. And as much as you've got a plan, you know, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail, but you can't, you can't be so rigid in the fact that you can't adapt to the situation. And, you know, exactly. good leaders are the kind of people that can look at a situation, hear what everybody's saying, and then go, okay, well, from what I'm, you know, from the information I'm being provided, this is the decision we're going to make because 
the worst thing you can do is not make a decision right <laughs> and just exactly and like force yeah. down a bad path so yeah i think that's hugely important what um so with that being said obviously you you know you're looking at it from that you know leadership point of view and, and you you have all that experience but if you could go back and speak to that young girl you know joining the air force what sort of three things would you say to her like hey you're going to learn these things along the way so don't worry about that but you need to focus on these three skills and they'll get you you know successfully through your time oh well definitely finding a good mentor you know in whatever career field you're in and just learning as much as you can from that person. That's, that's the big thing. I mean, but also within that, knowing that you're going to have to ultimately make your own decisions and make your own choices. You, and if it's something different from what they do or, or I don't know, that's a, that's been tough for me because you can talk to 10 different people and they'll tell you 10 different ways to do something. And for them, that's the right way. Yeah. But you kind of have to figure out what works for you too. And then when you, you know, own up to your decisions, if you make a mistake, own up to your mistakes, learn from it. But you know, in my early years, I would spend a lot of time second guessing decisions that I would make because it wasn't, one of the five decisions that people told me this is how it needs to be done. Yeah. So I don't know. That's, that's one thing. Um, and I always tell, I feel like for me, I made the right decisions uh, career field wise coming up. And, and sometimes I look back at that. And I'm like, how in the world, a 17 year old girl, <laughs> you know, and all the things that 17 year old girls are into or, preoccupied with at that time like how how did I have the foresight to know what I wanted to do and be able to make some of those decisions so when I talk to other young individuals high schoolers that are looking to joining the Air Force or the Army my biggest piece of advice to those individuals is do your research know what you want to do because I knew exactly what I wanted to do and I would not let those recruiters talk me out of it you know do your research know exactly what you want to get into take other people's advice with a grain of salt, but ultimately do what it is that you feel you, you want to do your passion, find your passion. But along those same lines, the military can be a great, um, just joining the military and the experience and the training that you will get in any career field and having that to set you up for the civilian side, find something that you can do that will, correlate or transfer to this the civilian side because I know and you know probably just as well there's a lot of people that get in um, and it's a job they really enjoy doing but then when they get out they're kind of they're kind of lost or those experiences those those things that they learn don't transfer well to a civilian career and so I do try to tell people it's air, air traffic control is a good one you know if that's something that interests you do it on the military side, get the experience, get the training, get the knowledge, and then you are set on the civilian side. So, you know, little things like that. And yeah. that's, that's one of the biggest things I try to tell people, just find what you love and research it and go for it. Yeah. Because it's been, military has been one of the best things I've ever done for my life. I will say that hands down. 
yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, it's hugely important to have a plan, but it's, you know, it's also important to soak up everything along the way. Do you know what I mean? It's exactly. Like, yeah. don't, don't miss the moment because you were too busy, like looking at the, you know, at the end, it, it, you've got to have mm-hmm. the, you've got to have the bigger picture in mind, but you know, also oh, yeah. enjoy what's right in front of you in the moment. Um, otherwise you'll, it'll fly past and, and you'll miss it. Oh, it does. I, it does for sure. If I was going to ask you like what we would call a, a dip, but your best story, your funniest story, the, the silliest thing you've ever seen or the, the, the dumbest thing that's ever gone wrong. I know you gave us a couple of funny stories already, but like, I'm sure you have plenty. Is the one you can pick out where you're like, hey, this is the, the most ridiculous thing that's ever happened? Uh, the one that comes to mind, and it's not necessarily military related, I guess it kind of is. When I was 19, I had the opportunity to take a 30-day transit, it was a transit alert job in Aviano, Italy. And this was my first big trip with a guard. It was me and this guy who was about to retire. He was probably in his 50s and he was getting ready to retire. So the two of us fly over to Aviano, Italy for a month and we get over there. And of course, all these other young people or young guys and girls, oh yeah, let's go to Venice for the weekend. Let's go to Rome for the weekend. But when it comes down to it, they're stationed there for two or three years. They're not in any big hurry to go. So it was Veterans Day weekend. And we had, so it was three day weekend. We had a long weekend and I was really wanting to go somewhere and try to make plans. Everybody basically kind of fell off the radar. So it was going to be just me. 19 years old in Italy. I don't speak the language. I went down the street to a travel agent, booked my flight, (laughs) which is crazy at this point to think about it. But I flew my little 19 year old self down to Rome for the weekend by myself. Um, and just walked until I found, I got a little paper map, walked until I found my hotel. Um, I didn't know how to make calls because this was prior to cell phones. Um, of course, my family back home can't get in touch w- with me for the weekend, so they're freaking out. And and now I just look at that. And I'm I'm so thankful for the experiences that the military has allowed me to have, like that, for instance. Yeah. Um, seeing the world, being able to travel and just go all over the place. That was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. Being in a city in Rome by myself, and you don't realize just being with another person in those conversations, how much that can distract you from just being in the moment and seeing everything there is to see around you and just soaking it all up. So that was probably just early on in my career, but one of the best experiences I've ever had. Yeah, that is an absolutely incredible (laughs) story. And I would say that like, like hats off to 19 year old you, because I, you know, (laughs) a lot of, a lot of our guys do that kind of stuff. And I I was, uh, yeah. That should be a piece of advice for anyone joining the military. You get an opportunity like that and you take it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You get it done. And Absolutely. Yeah, that's incredible. There's yeah. a guy called Cody who was on episode 15 and he's stationed in Italy right now. And that's all he talks about. He's like, mm-hmm. the mountains here are beautiful. The wine here is beautiful. The people here are kind. And he just yeah. like, he gets out of his helicopter and he's gone and he's just off enjoying it. And I'm like, I, you know, <laughs> that 19 year old you was exactly right. Get out of there. Do something. Exactly. If anyone else can stay on the base and drink beer, but that's boring that's the thing you you know you never and that's what I try to tell my young guys when we are on missions wherever we're at 
don't stay in your room, get off base, go see these places because you never know if you'll have that opportunity again. And for me, I've never been to Italy since then. I'm 37 years old. It's a, so a lot of money to take advantage. Yes. Yes. So take advantage of every opportunity that, that comes up just take advantage of it. And it was incredible. So yeah. no regrets. <laughs> well done. Well done. Good um, so, sort of to a little bit more sort of lighthearted, kind of get inside your mind a little bit. If we were to make you go and operate your job, but you're, you're on a desert island, so you're still going to be able to function, you're still going to be able to do your role. What three items are you going to take with you to the desert island? <laughs> oh, gosh. So, oh, man, I don't know. I'm a bit of a... I love camping, so I kind of like the whole survivalist bit. I mean, obviously, you'd have to have something to procure water. Um, have my knife or some type of multi-tool. And, oh, geez, that's hard thinking about <laughs> within, like, a medical, too. I don't know, but you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. So something for water, uh, something, some type of knife, and then fire starter i guess <laughs> Those would be top three i like it i like <laughs> you've got you've got full survival mode and i am always surprised at <laughs> people that don't say knife um because you know pretty much all of us have a knife on our body all of the time when we're operating and then you go i'm gonna be on another island and no one says knife you're like <laughs> please go and watch you know cast away with and see him cut his hand open oh, trying to cut things on top. And you will always have a knife <laughs> strapped to your body for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> yep. I really appreciate you like uh, taking the time. And I know you're a bit of a, you know, you're a badass in other ways. And, and I would really like to have you on um, again to speak about those kind of things. Um, and I feel like we're kind of going to skirt away from the fact that, you know, you're a tactical athlete and you're like, you know, like, kicking ass like right now and stuff like that. But, you know, we've dived really deep into your military career. If you had, like, one closing thought across, you know, our community, you know, JTACs, air crew, you know, guys who are in the aeromed community, so, you know, generally the broader community, what would that sort of message be? Just, I don't know, enjoy every moment. I mean, I've got 19 years in. I'm coming on 20 and getting close to looking at retirement soon which I don't know I'll stay in probably for a little while longer but just enjoy every moment of it enjoy, enjoy every experience try to find the good in every experience it's easy once you've been in this long to get caught up in the, <laughs> in the crap <laughs> that goes along with it and to get frustrated with your job and sucked into the drama but you know I try to look at everything glass half full and find the silver lining and you know, your perception of things can change your attitude about it. If you look at things positively, you know, it's just going to be a better experience. So just try to enjoy every moment of it. Look for the silver linings um, because we've got some badass jobs. We're doing work that, you know, the vast majority of the population would never do. So just try to enjoy it. Yeah. And appreciate appreciate what you're being able to contribute to you know to the world and to the I mean, just with your service. Absolutely. That would be my thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that growth mindset thing that you talked about there about, you know, seeing it for what it is and making sure you're always getting better is just um, super important for everybody. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community and we really appreciate them. Thank you everybody for listening.